Greetings, listeners. This is the Paleo Protestant Podcast. There's been a bit of a um, hiatus here, and I apologize, especially to some of the people that I've met while speaking this fall who were uh, somewhat enthusiastic about the pod- podcast, and I do appreciate their support. I'm back with uh, Corey Moss, Department Chair, History Here, Teaches Reformation History, Early Modern Europe, and Miles Smith, who teaches American history, Jacksonian period, and but and beyond. Um, and I'm D.G. Hart. I teach history of various stripes, but mainly American intellectual and religious history. And we're going to, going to talk today about um, denominationalism as a form of church life, um, which doesn't sound all that exciting, but it does relate to some... F- um, the parachurch world, the megachurch world, and uh, church networks, and think I've been thinking myself a lot about the usefulness of denominations, and I'll say more about that. But before we start that conversation, I will give um, my colleagues um, a chance to talk about things that they've been up to, whether this semester in what they're teaching, or we we just returned from a fall break if you want to say something about that or if now all the vehicles are back running (laughs) uh they can say something about that uh we'll go alphabetically Corey. why don't you go first yeah um so yeah the the vehicles reference that's me we we had two vehicles decide to die at pretty much exactly the same moment so we've been walking about lately but but that situation is resolved just in time for strep throat to sweep through the house mm. so i'm i'm quarantined here in my office uh hopefully neither catching it nor spreading it otherwise everything's great was that your fall break basically cars and and illness uh the the, the cars and then as soon as the break ended on monday morning is when the illness sort of made itself apparent mm. So, otherwise, yeah, otherwise the the break was great. Much much needed. Like, yeah, Miles. Yeah, I had a I had a, a nice break. I went up to Traverse City. Um enjoyed the foliage in northern Michigan um and the good restaurants in resort town. Had some very good sushi. Um and so it was lovely. Better than Johnny T's? Better than our little local Johnny T's, Daryl. Um yeah, I know that's a shocker, but no, I had a wonderful meal. There goes uh, this week's sponsor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, uh, actually, I should say, uh, as I got to be a part of the uh, the Moss family uh, car saga, because uh, Dr. Moss and his wife used my truck, and that was not a bad thing for me, because I arrived home to find that Mrs. Moss had left me uh, an entire chicken. Uh, ah. uh, because of this, I thought I, she said I will leave you a, a little chicken. I thought I was going to get like maybe a chicken breast. Um, did you have to no, dress I, it, or was it alive, or did it, no? It, it's, well, it's a whole chicken. <laughs> so this thing is going to feed me. Uh, it's going to be a pretty excellent stew uh, here here in a week or so. So um, anyway, but no, things are going well. Class is going well. I'm teaching the Gilded Age, um, and so excited to give my students. Uh, uh, a few uh, small pieces from a book called The Lost Soul of American Protestantism uh, by uh, by our very own D.G. Hart. So uh, it's going well. We're talking about Darwinism and uh, and and Charles Hodge uh, this week. So it's 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 a good time. All right. Just to complete the circle here, um, Ann and I went to Birmingham. And whenever I say that, people say you went to Birmingham, Alabama. And I said, no, we Birmingham, Michigan. And it's surprising <laughs> how few people know about Birmingham, Michigan, which is incredibly affluent, um, very pleasant, lots of great restaurants. And they've got a Sotheby's. They've got another high-end realtor. The name is escaping me. They've got two tailors. You can go there and get custom shirts, custom slacks. Um, by you, you mean people that don't work for Hillsdale college, right? (laughs) Um, and, and we've, we've been there once before and it's, it's just amazing. Um, you know, you know, there's 
Ann and I both have East Coast biases, so there's a lot of the Midwest that we don't know. But anyway, we just had a a, a very pleasant time hanging out there, and in in academic stuff, I'm teaching religion in America, and I just taught yesterday an amazing book, which seems to be neglected. Um, and I part of the reason I'll mention, but it's Peter D'Agostino called Roman America, and it's about the way the Roman question in Italian history, what to do with the the temporal powers of the Pope through the formation of the Italian nation down to the Lateran Pacts that the papacy established with Mussolini in 1929, and the way that, that those debates played out among American Roman Catholics and the letters that they sent, with the way bishops reacted and whatnot, it's really a fascinating piece of work. I wish I had spent more time with it when I was writing about American Catholics. And and nobody seems to pay attention to it, even though it's a uh, University of Chicago dissertation published University of North Carolina Press 2005. One of the reasons may be that Peter D'Agostino was murdered in mm. Hyde Park in Chicago, and it's still unsolved, hmm. um, just wow. beaten up and and left for dead and leaves behind uh, a wife and I think a couple of children. Back then, it happened in 2005, a year, basically a year after the book. And I, I wonder if his voice were around to write about the church and the American situation the way he did in that book. Um, he'd be more prominent he'd be and his argument would be more prominent because otherwise you have to have scholars kind of pick up pick up the mantle for him and that's sometimes hard to do but it's it's a book i think that rivals um some of the work that john mcgreevy who i really respect at Mm -hmm. university of notre dame that he has done anyway so let's get to today's topic which is loosely denominationalism and i and i Bring this up in part thinking about um podcasts I did on American Reformer, to their credit, they had me on. And I we had a amiable conversation about Christian nationalism. Um, but I had to think about why younger men, younger male Protestants were maybe attracted to Christian nationalism. And I was thinking about the the lack of um of prestige, the lack of power that institutions have, or a lack of trust in institutions. And there are possibilities for creating your own institutions now, such as various platforms, online, blogs, podcasts, etc. And you can cr- conceivably create networks. So this isn't the first time it's it's been happening. And someone like um, Yuval Levin, I, I've read some of his articles about declining trust in institutions and he's not the only one writing about this but i do wonder how much that extends to churches denominations communions and Mm. if there's a sense among younger men in particular um that there's just not that much action in denominations and so if we're going to try to do something to establish a greater christian presence in the United States or elsewhere, we'll look we'll look outside denominations. And I've thought about this too in relation to someone like Tim Keller. In my review of um, the um, Colin Hansen book, I mean, I did at the end of it spend some time thinking about whether the PCA would have been very much better served at times by Tim Keller if he had poured some of his institutional. Um, where'd you Where'd you review that at, Daryl? Uh, Heidelblog. Okay. Um, Scott Clark's blog. Um, if PCA would have benefited from Keller pouring his institutional energies into the PCA. And then I think, too, I listen occasionally to the Civitas podcast by um, with Peter Wood and uh, – no, is it Peter Wood? Is it – it's Peter Lightheart, but is it also Peter Wood or – James, his, uh, James, James, James Wood. Sorry, yeah. sorry, James. If you're I'm sure you're not listening because I'm <laughs> R2K, but um, uh, you know they have this post-ecclesial, sorry, post-liberal ecclesiocentric 
theme that they're developing. And so that sounds very church-centered, but it's also <laughs> it relies on a lot of parachurch institutions. Peter Lightheart's own center in 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 Birmingham, Alabama, I believe. Um, the podcast website, um, blogging, etc. And again, I've been frustrated at times with with Peter that he hasn't he he was ordained in the PCA that he didn't do more to sort of work within the channels of a denomination and co and I guess before this goes on too much longer, but I should probably say too that people who know my own involvement in the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, may think that I'm cooking the books to promote myself because I do serve on different committees in the church. Um, and I'd like to think that that's not what's going on, but you know, people can take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Um, but so what is the status of your own communions in relation to people working in them and thinking they're going to work with the agencies the institutions, the bishops, the general assembly, the synod, to accomplish what they they want to do, and that's a, that's a sufficient outlet for them. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a big question. Um, well, let, let me let me start here since I have some experience here. I mean, like you, I serve on various boards and committees and commissions of of my own denomination, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, and and I entirely understand any sort of frustration with those existing institutions because they do move very very slowly. Um, I mean, we we have a, a, a commission on theology and church relations, and it's it's tasked with doing a variety of things. One of them is is sort of answering writing reports in answer to questions that are you know, of the moment. So uh, a congregation or a synodical convention can say, hey, this is an important question. We, we want it to be answered. We would like the Commission on Theology and Church Relations to, to study it and propose a, an answer. Um, what that often means is six years later, or 12 years later, an answer to that question is published, hmm. at, at which time it's probably still a useful document, but it might not be a terribly pressing question anymore. So there, 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 is, there is that. Um, but also in, in the LCMS, I mean, we, we have a number of, I suppose they could be called parachurch organizations. But, but they tend to be closely tied to the denomination. Um, so we, I mean, we have our own publishing house. We have a number of what are called recognized service organizations um, that, that, that are not necessarily governed by synod um, and don't necessarily do word and sacrament ministry. So they're not like church per se, but, but parachurch. And yet there still is a, a fairly strong denominational identity and tie um, so at least in that respect we, we don't quite to the same extent go looking for other differently affiliated parachurch organizations mm. I, so on the case of before we get to you miles sorry just but just to follow up on the case of publishing um yeah. i mean if What's the name of the publisher? Is it just LCMS? Uh, uh, Concordia Publishing House. That's right. Sorry. Um, I mean, if they wanted to publish non-Lutheran material, yeah. How would that? I mean, as far as I don't know if they're how much they're subsidized by people in the church. Um, if it's a if it's a for, for profit endeavor, they have to make their own money. I mean, I serve on. The Board of Trustees uh, for Great Commission Publication, which is Sunday School Publisher, just returned from there yesterday uh, in Atlanta. And that's a more or less for-profit, meaning it's not like we make a lot of money, but it's we have to pay our own way. We don't get subsidies right, right. from either the PCA or the OPC who own it. And I'm wondering if it's that kind of relationship, but if you wanted to publish 
you know, a book on Presbyterian history because there, there, I mean, there aren't as many Presbyterians in the United States as there are Lutherans, so that wouldn't be a smart move. But say you want to do something on Baptists, <laughs> right? You know, right. and and tap that market. Could that happen? Yeah. Or and and what would happen to the to Concordia in the minds of Lutherans? I mean, would would that cost them? Yeah, it probably would. So, I mean. I, I, I believe that our publishing house is operated along the same lines as yours, that, you know, it, it's owned and operated by Synod, but they have to pay their own way. Con congregations oh, yeah. and parishioners are not are not footing the bill for publishing costs. Um, and a lot of the material published is stuff like Sunday school curricula, biblical commentaries, stuff that mm -hmm. is going to be of immediate use in a mm -hmm. practical way in the parish. Um, they do publish some academic stuff, so they're they're they they they're one of the publishers of Luther's works and hmm. some of the Orthodox wow. fathers like uh, hmm. Gerhard and Chemnitz. Um, but no, this is this is a this is a good question um, because it 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 may be the fact that even though we have our own publishing house, this is one of the areas where even a Lutheran author would choose to shop a manuscript to another publishing house because it just doesn't quite fit with what Concordia typically publishes. So they, they don't think there's going to be a market for it among mm. their usual readers. So if you, you know, if, if even if you were a, a confessional Lutheran, if you wanted to write a book on um, you know, something going on in the Catholic world, something going on in the Baptist world, or just something going on in like contemporary politics – it's probably not the sort of thing that you're going to publish there. Right. So uh -huh. if you're, you know, if you're into something outside of that orbit, you're going to look for like-minded people elsewhere. Right. Miles, how do you respond to either anything we've said or the original long-winded question, such as it was? No, I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a guy who likes sort of denomination or at least the kind of like the, the denominations that are only one step removed from the main line. I think that some of that's sociological. Um, and so I think the question of denomination is interesting because I think what's particularly compelling to me is the sort of sociological sorting that's going on um, now instead of theological sorting. Um, so you have people sort of <laughs> jumping to Anglicanism or Lutheranism or maybe maybe some forms of Presbyterianism, uh, they're coming from a lot of times um, kind of big box, what we call non-denominational churches or something. And so in order to be quote unquote traditional Christians, you have some people moving into kind of older Protestant communions. I think numerically what's happening though is uh, the denominations are actually weakening. I think I've read something, I think this was at the New York Times, talking about this massive jump in non-affiliated churches. Um, and I think it was at the Times mm. it was last year. Mm. And so, you, you know, the, the rise of of non-denoms, or maybe what we're trying to posit is the idea of post-denominationalism more than mm -hmm. non-denominationalism. Um, and so I think that's kind of what's going. People are kind of sociologically sorting. Um, and so, that's that's happening the anglican church of north america is interesting because we don't have a lot of um we don't have a big denominational apparatus it's pretty small we do have our own publisher um anglican house publishing is is kind of the 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 a de facto it's a we define it as a ministry affiliate of the mm -hmm. anglican church in north america and its board is uh you know an ex-archbishop and uh, you know, several bishops, a couple lay people, and a bunch of rectors. And so we do have our own publisher. Um, we don't have hospitals. We don't have secondary educational institutions. Even our committee, obviously, the, the thing about Anglicanism is that we don't have lay officers. All of our, we have, you know, our three, three forms of office are all, you know, people in religious vocations. And so we don't have a ton of things that they could staff that aren't just the actual ecclesiastical kind of apparatus of the Anglican church itself. So we don't have um, a lot of denominational stuff. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who would like to aspire to have more denominational stuff. 
Uh, I'm not one of the people who's particularly bothered by the relatively uh, bare bones. I'll call it bare bones. Some people might call it campy um, lack of denominational institutions. Um, the Ang- Anglicanism, the Anglican Church in North America is even hard to define as a denomination um, just because of the way Anglican polity ends up working. Um, it's not sensational for someone who is an Anglican in Michigan to say, well, I essentially am a co-religionist of someone in Nigeria. Um, that division, um, or I should say that that identification of kind of co-religionist or almost someone in a, in a fellow denomination doesn't seem as 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 um, contrived as it might in other communions, largely because, for example, my bishop, uh, who's a bishop in North America, was also coterminously, and I think he still is, a member of the Nigerian House of Bishops. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, uh, right, denomination, um, as we understand it, I think is kind of American. Um, and I know that the way the, the term is used is typically we're using a, a, a a rhetorical construction that's from the 19th century. Um, I think of Robert Baird's 1844 book, Religion in America, which I think kind of creates, at least in the minds of a lot of the reading public, the idea of denominations as we un- as we understand it and his taxonomy there. So yeah, Ang- Angli- Angli- the Anglican Church in North America is a denomination in one sense, and yet it doesn't quite act like... Um, uh, other Protestant denominations uh, in in another way. Um, so yeah, it, some of that's our 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 polity. Um, it's just a bit different. Do you? I mean, do you think <clears throat> the Episcopal Church mm-hmm. has structures? Uh, maybe not as many as some of the others, but seminaries, colleges, um, publishing. Do you think that for some of the Anglicans who left? And, and obviously, you're, you've talked a lot about um, evangelicals who have gone in, so they don't have the experience with the Episcopal Church that some some people in the Ang- Anglican world do. But do you think some of those older members who left have thought about let's let's try to cr- recreate some of those structures, yeah. and and they would if they could if you had the money, but it it's expensive to to do that. Obviously, and this that is I think my- the o- OPC. Probably would have wanted to be like the PCUSA back in the 30s, but you know we had ministers who couldn't even afford a ham sandwich. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> our our experience is really interesting because that's definitely uh, the case. There's actually two books that came out about that. They were written by I forget who published them. It was Episcopal rectors talking about the schism between ACNA. Um, it was right when they right when it happened, 2006 to 2009. But what's been really interesting is I think you'll find. That especially in the ACNA, there is some what I'll call um, uh, there's some sort of property sensitive. The idea of having property um, is sort of traumatic for some folks because a lot of them are, especially the older communicants in ACNA, they're former Episcopalians. And the main thing, the, the main sort of trauma they went through probably wasn't even leaving the Episcopal Church. A lot of people were kind of just so disdainful of the church's hierarchy, no matter what its kind of complexion, liberal, conservative, whatever, they were so disdainful of the hierarchy. It wasn't hard to leave, you know, a, a, a bad bishop or something like that. But leaving the property was tough, um, especially yeah. because so many people had, had grown up in these churches and whatnot. So I think there's, there's definitely a desire um, to have, church buildings, a lot of our diocese, a lot of churches have extremely modest buildings, Mm. Um, extremely modest buildings. I think people might come to our parish here. We have a, uh, I don't, I don't think uh, it's an opulent building, but it's certainly not as modest as the other ones. Um, And so uh, I think there is almost a fear of what it would look like to have haggling over property happen again. So that sort of tamps down, I think the rush towards the creation of certain institutional um, apparatuses, at least among ACNA. And do you have just one more follow-up on that? Yeah. Do, you, do you have a sense of, of any bishops being more inclined in that direction, to, sort uh, of toward structures and others who are kind of comfortable with a, a leaner 
presence? Yeah, I, I think all the bishops want um, want churches to to have to buy their own buildings. Um, and I think some of this is just right. We need to act like a real church. We need to act like I think I'd, I'd, I'd call it this way. We need to act like a grown up denomination. Um, and in order to do that, it means that parishes have to learn to take care of property, have to learn that property uh, matters and obviously worship space uh, matters. I, I think, you know, one of the things you'll see is, is you know, uh, young high church guys in these tiny dioceses or maybe even some of these even smaller um, provinces like uh I'm not sure if you guys know what the continuum is, but there's these three provinces that aren't a member of the ACNA in North America, and they tend to be very traditionalist. And so you'll kind of have the world's, my, my joke is kind of the world's only storefront um, Anglo-Catholic parish, right? <laughs> it'll, it'll be, it'll be, well, I, as much as I joke, right? You'll, there's essentially these very, very modest buildings. I'm not joking about the modesty of, of the, of the buildings. I, I'm, you know, my heart's with anybody trying to do that, but they'll have very ornate altars and sort of just uh, a, a, an attempt to create a chancel that's clearly a creation of an 18th or 19th century Gothic-style Anglo-Catholic church, and trying to do that in you know a, a, a building beside the Kmart, it's just hard to do. Um, and so I think that there's there's this sense where we want to have buildings, and I don't know if that's necessarily a push, at least in in a lot of the dioceses. For a certain sort of liturgical opulence, I think it's just about parishes being responsible um, and taking the church seriously. Mm. <clears throat> well, back to this question about um, whether uh, people in our communions um, are in them and and look to promote what it means to be Anglican, what it means to be Lutheran, what it means to be Presbyterian through the structures of the church or whether they set up shop, get ordained, maybe even if, especially if they're church planters. Um, I don't know if that's the word that your communions use, but, um, and then they, they kind of build their own brand and, but they're sort of in, but they're not really in when we were talking about this, topic before we started to record um Corey brought up a, a church um lcms church called refresh and i did a search a google search for refresh in german and i thought maybe they could at least call themselves the actualizierung um <laughs> which is according to google one 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 german translation of refresh but but how much of that? I mean, I, I'm sort of surprised to hear that would happen among Lutherans. I mean, because I, I think in the Anglo-American world of British Protestantism, you know, so the Methodists, the Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Episcopalians, mm -hmm. Anglicans, um, you know, there's something about the British Empire being a part of the being in the established church and being at a, a nonconformist church and the ways in which the British empire allowed that to play out. And there weren't, you know, heavy sanctions upon dissenters. There were some, but there was a kind of recognition of a shared uh, identity. And I think that's part of the backdrop for denominationalism in, in the United States. It's just kind of playing out what ha was happening in British Protestant life. Um, but, you know, I look at Lutherans as being different from that. Well, I mean, Miles said earlier that he thought denominationalism was sort of an American thing. And it does seem that in, in Europe, it's more either state church or free church. Those are mm -hmm. those are the options. I mean, and the free churches could have a flavor of, you know, one of, the, I guess, the British Protestant options. But still, again, without letting this question go on too long, are, how many are there in Lutheran circles who w want to use the Lutheran brand as it were, but only in a way to kind of get things going, but then they take it in a different direction. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's almost the opposite. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there, there have been two waves. I mean, there, there were with, with the whole contemporary worship movement of, of a generation ago. I mean, you saw a lot of, you know, n- no offense, but, but boomers who thought yeah, this, this is the wave of the future. This is the way to get butts in the pews. We're still going to keep Lutheran in our name and we've still got an altar and we've still got a pulpit, but we're just going to, you know, stick a band on the side and sort of be a little less traditionally Lutheran. But the the thing I was talking about is typically younger guys coming straight out of seminary who have convinced themselves that the way the denomination does things and the, the, the sort of mental associations with this denomination or perhaps denominations in general is just not going to be helpful. So we're, we're not even going to use the name to sort of get get a, a startup going we're actually gonna we're gonna hide the name precisely for that purpose mm-hmm. so yeah this this could be a guy who has just come out of uh four years in an lcms seminary and he's called as a, a church planter in a suburb and it starts in a storefront or, or rents a gymnasium but but lutheran is not going to be in the name of the church it might be somewhere in small print on the website, um, but you know the, the decision is just made that no, a denominational identity is not going to be helpful, and it mm. might even be harmful. One, one of the one of the ironies in in all of this, to my way of thinking, is that uh, it's my understanding that because they are startups, because they are church plants, they actually receive quite a bit of support. Mm. from the denomination mm. financial support and otherwise um and this is you know this is stuck in the craw of a lot of us for a long time why why are we throwing money at people who don't want to in effect be a part of of our synod um so but yeah it's, I mean, it's certainly doesn't a trend. the senate have have mechanisms for saying you if, if we if we're going to give you money we want the lutheran name on it in some way i mean and you, I mean, there could well be strings attached, but it doesn't sound like yeah. the synod is that. Um, yeah, and conscious. it's no, that's right, and and a lot of this is sort of geographically determined. So you know, our our equivalent of of bishops would would be something like district presidents. Hmm. So and and yeah, in some districts this would not fly at all. In some hmm. districts, they're they're very happy for it, hmm. and I, I don't want to air too much dirty dirty laundry uh before our audience but th- there, there's a, a oh, which districts which districts <laughs> there, there's a political <laughs> angle because you know like the united states of america um we we apportion representatives to our you know synodical meetings by you know, the number of congregations the number of clergy the number of oh. parishioners so yeah, it it might be advantageous to a particular district to say we're perfectly happy to have this group that doesn't really advertise itself as Lutheran because they've got two thousand people showing up on a regular basis, and we can count those numbers when we divvy up you know representatives for synodical conventions, etc. But do they have to be church members? I mean, or can you count merely attendance? For, yeah, for that re- yeah. representation. No, they they have to be members, but that that is another thing. Right. Um, okay. I, I mean, that can be a, a cheap and brand too. I yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Because yeah, and in, in, in you know, in a sort of typical traditional LCMS congregation, to become a member means going through months of catechesis, um, with the with a goal of actually learning what this denomination believes, teaches, and confesses. Um, my sense is this is not what's happening at a lot of these churches that don't advertise themselves as Lutherans. Mm. That that would kind of give the game away. Um, you know, now that you've been sitting here clapping and drinking coffee for for the last six weeks, we're we're gonna we're gonna tell you what we really believe and what you have to believe if you want to be a member, and we're gonna do this over a period of nine months. It, it just doesn't really fit the paradigm. That that would make people ask. Well, then, why don't you just advertise this on the sign out front? But it, but at least you you do require membership. I mean, my experience here 
at Hillsdale OPC is <clears throat> then it's it's amazing the number of students that come through our our uh, church and um, and want to join and they've never been members anywhere, even though right, they've gone right. to, to churches. But the the category of membership or belonging isn't there. I mean, so you you go to the church, you're you're part of what the church is doing, but there's no formal, actual, you know you know, recept public reception or signing some document or, you know, and, and that gets into, I mean, if <laughs> undocumented aliens, the way that they function in a, in a society, um, you know, when, when, when the rubber hits the road, what kind of protections, what kind of rights do you have in that, in that communion? If it's, if it's a parachurch or, I mean, if it's a mega church or somewhat, startup church environment that they're completely on their own that's one thing but if you're in if you are in a, a something like a startup but you're in one of these other communions where there are there's real church government real church polity and how things operate you're not serving those people very well if they if a problem does arise and what kind of mechanisms there are are for them um and there are other maybe benefits you don't have to just put it in the negative in a negative way, like Miles, yeah. um, uh, what's what's the experience in in among Anglicans? I mean, how many people are um, Anos, Anglican in name only? Yeah, I think too many. I think I think the problem with Anglicanism is maybe the opposite problem. The LCMS, everybody wants to be Anglican, uh, precisely because we fill this sort of niche that is adjacent to quote-unquote evangelicalism which is a term that i loathe and i think daryl dislikes just only slightly um less less than me but uh so to become anglican is to sort of um well i mean deeply attached to for example christian colleges right this is where a lot of the anglicanism is cooked up and so to be anglican is to essentially sort of transcend your evangelical background and to become, I, I know I have a, a colleague here, a Lutheran colleague who's not Dr. Moss, who jokingly calls uh, my church high church non-denominationalism. <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, but I think there's truth in this. I mean, I I, I would be a much more sectarian Anglican, um, probably. Um, and I I would uh, probably, we, we don't really bar the table a la Lutherans. Um, uh, but I, I think that what's essentially happened is Anglican has become all things to all people. So it, it essentially means nothing to nobody quite a bit. It, it tends to be sort of a sort of syncretistic, you know, we're kind of evangelical. You know, you, you guys might have heard the idea of three streams um, Anglicanism, which was a creation of the, the of what passed for conservatism in the Episcopal church. You had three streams. You had a Catholic stream and a charismatic stream and an evangelical stream. Um, and uh, so three streams is sort of, uh, was this idea that we can get everybody if we just do three streams. And I think, I think maybe there was kind of a version of this in Lutheran churches to it at some point. It, it, I think it was just a thing among relatively uh, high church um denominations in in the latter part of the 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 20th century so i think that there are too many what do we call them anos uh anos daryl um so i think there's too many and i think that what's happened is um to to be anglican is has become more of a sort of um more of a socio-ecclesiastical journey than a meaningful submission to a form of church government. Um, and so uh, I encounter my bishops uh, relatively often. Um, my bishop is, is I don't think has a, dis, has a reputation of being a softy. Um, I think he uses the crozier um, probably more forcefully um, than certainly some sort of non-denom types are used to. And I, I think that's just because he takes the church seriously. Um, I think that, so, so much of what passes for Anglicanism is kind of just kind of a, you know, syncretistic sort of non-denom evangelicalism with a splash of mysticism on top of it. And somebody throws a stole on and so boom, we have an Anglican church now. Um, and so I, I think that 
I, I would argue our problem is probably the opposite of the the LCMS is that we have too many people who want to be Anglican um, and not enough people who want to actually um, be what would historically look like Anglicanism. Um, so but, on the on the sorry to interrupt, but on, yeah, on yeah. the ground, what what would it look like to become a member? So I'm I'm new in yeah. town. I show up at Holy Trinity. I'm there for three weeks. I like it, so I go to the rector and say I, I'd like to become a member. We I think it's, we have yeah. It's it varies uh, from parish to parish. I think our parish is six months in confirmation. Okay, so there uh, there is a, a period yeah, of yeah. So so we that's something we wrote into our parish bylaws. I don't think there is there is a sort of provincially wide standard. Um, and I, I don't know if in Reformed churches there are um, denominationally wide standards. I, I I couldn't. I've been a member of one in a while. But no, our I parish, think it's had, yeah, our parish has written this into our bylaws. Um, so to be a voting, because we do have congregational meetings, um, and congregations do actually have a voice in Episcopal polity. Um, so uh, there is a standard um, in our in our in our um, parish. I think what's maybe interesting is that when you think about how church government relates to the individual parishioner, that's probably where things are very different um, for Anglicans than it would be for, say, a Presbyterian um, or some sort of big box evangelical. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, uh, I mean, if you're a Presbyterian, you see the guy, you see not only one guy, you see what in a you know normal sized church five six seven guys who exercise episcopal authority you see them every sunday um we see ours maybe twice a year hmm. um and so his authority is always there every parish typically has a bishop's chair that's left empty um during during the service hmm. uh, so the relationship between the parishioner and and what you might call church government uh, f- feels very different um, in in Anglican churches. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bug. Sometimes I think it's a virtue, um, in fact. But it it it, it is different um, from say a Presbyterian church or a non denominational church, which you know who is the authority there is mm-hmm. probably as pressing a question as whether they right. where they are. Yeah. Well, in the OPC, I mean, it's not like you'd go into the OPC to, to uh, use it as a launching pad. Um, I mean, our, our congregations are are small. Probably average size is sixty to eighty. Um, there is a phenomenon when successful congregations grow to a size of roughly three hundred, they leave. For somewhere else, and it it, it they you know, leave they, the denomination. They, yeah, and okay, they have gone PCA or EPC and Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And if they go EPC, you could probably think that the reason they do that is because because being uh, uh, um, opposing not ordaining women, um, you know, and and their growth may be partly responsible. I mean, appealing to women with some aspirations to serve as elders on the session. Um, you could understand that might be a reason both for growth as well as for their leaving. <clears throat> but um, at the same time, I would not say that uh, there's a strong sense of denominational identity. There's a very strong sense of, and it's curious because there's a very strong sense of Presbyterian church polity. You go to Presbytery, the regional body, or to assembly, and people know the Book of Church Order. They know Robert's rules better than they would know the Directory for Worship, say. And um, and so there's there's that kind of particularity, and that reflects you know part of the history of the church and the controversies that led to the church. And that the our argument would be the PCUSA the the mother church of the church that we left or that kicked us out didn't follow church polity so we need to know church polity um but when it comes goes beyond that it's it's not clear to me that 
we have a common understanding of what it means to be a Presbyterian, but even then, maybe even a, a sense of belonging to a denomination. Um, but I mean, to, we probably should begin to wrap up, but I don't want to end too quickly. Well, can, but can I, I can, sure. can I follow up with a question here? Um, so it, entirely coincidental, one, one of the the ladies at our congregation asked me uh, just a few weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, what I knew about the history of the the term denomination because she. Hmm. She mentioned that she had noticed it popping up in early 20th century literature, hmm. but she could not remember it ever having popped up in the, the older literature she had read. Um, and I mean, the, the, the term itself is of late 17th century coinage, and it's it's a synonym huh. for sect, but but it's the, the more polite way of saying sect. Um but my, my question is, one, one of its first use, uses specifically for churches is in the, the English context, where, where you've got Congregationalists and Baptists and Presbyterians in London, that they, they share an identity as dissenters from the established church, but they have some differences. And in the early 18th century, they, they organized themselves, I forget the exact title, but it's you know, something like the... The, the the dissenting body of the three denominations. Hmm. So there's a kind of Presbyterian English Presbyterian use of this term that also gets ambiguated a little bit because you're using this term to describe yourselves and hmm. other polities. So I, my, my my question, I guess, is is there something in you know, the Anglophone Presbyterian world in, in its history and its identity that might weaken denominational identity like like you're noting. Yeah. That that we just we think of ourselves as just one among many different types of dissenters with respect to the established church. <clears throat> I, I mean I guess I would say in the American context at least that up until the late 19th century, denominational identity would have been pretty strong. And even then, and, and that in the late 19th century is when the ecumenical movement really kicks in and there are efforts to try to unite the churches. There's a federal union of churches in the federal council formed in 1908. Um, there's an attempt to form a united church in 1920. And then there are various mergers and consolidations in the 20th century, thinking, say, of um, the uh, United Church of Christ, which is the legacy of the, of the Congregationalists, the legacy of Puritans. They pick up both the evangelical reformed or evangelical and reformed churches that Niebuhr, the Niebuhr brothers were associated with they also pick up the um the the reformed church us the uh, that john uh, williamson nevin was a part of um and so you have this odd phenomenon that this is the ucc is the communion of john winthrop uh john williamson nevin and and nevin hated the puritans and and jeremiah wright uh, and Reinhold Niebuhr. <laughs> I mean, how does that how does that possibly make any any sense? So, so even within within particular communion, you have this this really broad amalgamation of of traditions that have come together. Aside from what's whatever's happening with now the National Council of Churches, which is a pretty uh, a body that not many people pay attention to, it's still does work of some kind um but in in a period say between 19, 1850 and 1930 40 you could see that denominational identity would still be pretty strong you know denominational colleges denominational seminaries yeah. publications um mm -hmm. but you know then denominations begin to run out of steam for a variety of reasons in the 60s and the protestant mainline also runs out of steam um 
and you know part of what led me to think about this too is uh jake meter and um aaron wren have been writing about you know ways to recreate a mainline protestantism whether that's possible and in one of my classes i had students read i think i was in class but i was reading it this fall um ross douthat wrote a column maybe three or four years ago about what we owe to the protestant mainline and it was kind of nostalgic about the order the kind of moral and cultural order that the mainline protestants did did supply however well or not they did it um you, you know so this generally tracks again with a more de- of a decline of institutions so i so i get i mean i think w- one of the ways i'd like us to to conclude is to is to, to to talk about whether what we would recommend about denominations or even institutions and denominations are one expression of those institutions and i was thinking about what you were saying Corey, about some of those churches that are are loosely Lutheran. I mean, and those guys who start up a storefront church, do they think that that congregation is going to be around once they leave? I mean, it does seem to me that a a brand, a Lutheran and Anglican or Presbyterian brand does, does ensure to a certain extent some kind of continuity going forward and that people are going to stay in that communion right. with those larger um identities bound bound up but if it's just going to be dependent on that church planter that pastor and what he is doing to get people in that's loosely lutheran that the next pastor could just be anybody yeah that's yeah this that's a really good question and i, I don't want to be uncharitable but my my gut reaction is they haven't thought that far ahead. Hmm. I mean, these are guys in their late 20s. What what happens when they retire is just not even on the radar. Now, on the one hand, maybe it doesn't need to be because to the extent that these are officially associated with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, then synodical bylaws mandate that they can only call another Hmm. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastor. Um. But but the the broader question um, is I mean it's a really good one I I, re- I remember maybe I've I've relayed this anecdote before but I remember when I was in California uh, one of my buddies and I were talking about this and I and I was grousing and I was being uncharitable and I said of one of these guys you know he, he's he's not even Lutheran so so why 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 is he still part of synod and I was corrected. Um, my, my friend said to me, no, no, that's not, that's not correct. He is Lutheran. The problem is none of his parishioners are. So, so this, this guy still believes in the Reformation solas. He still believes in baptismal regeneration. He still believes that when the elements are consecrated, that's the true body and blood of Christ. But he doesn't effectively communicate these things to his parishioners. So when when they move because of a, a job change or something, they're not going to look for the closest Lutheran church. They're going to look for the church that that superficially looks like the one they just left. Hmm. So, so in in a sense, I would rephrase the question. You know, not not simply what happens with that congregation when that pastor moves on, but but what happens to those people when they move on um mm-hmm. and i and i think in some ways that the answer is the same that they they don't they don't really remain lutheran in any and isn't it the sense. case too if those people in the church aren't that lutheran and this this pastor who's planted the church and worked it um and he retires or moves to another call and then the the officers in the church responsible for, you know, finding a pastor to replace him. And then they hit these rules. Oh wait, we've got to choose somebody. F- and they, I could, could I could see them saying, "Oh, we're out of here." 
Oh, Thank absolutely. You. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know if this is if this is a problem in the Anglican world. But since I mean, the bishops would have a certain I don't you know, I mean they have a measure of control that synods and assemblies don't, but yeah, so, so much of the problem with the Anglican world is that people aren't being forcefully catechized into any sort of Anglicanism. They're usually being catechized away from whatever it is they're escaping. Um, and so people do that via either, quote unquote, tradition or, you know, or escape from fundamentalism. Um, and so I think that one of the reasons why I think I became a relatively sturdy Anglican in, in, in its I think in its true sense, which is a Protestant Episcopal church, I wish we called ourselves a Protestant Episcopal church. I would rather see the language of Protestant Episcopal on every church rather than mm. Anglican, because I fundamentally think Anglican is fake. Um, mm. Anglican is English. We are not an English church. We are a Protestant Episcopal church in North America. And so I think that sort of, I don't want to sort of like hook converts up to the fire hose and just say you're going to drink this or else um, <laughs> but I, fundamentally I, I think that so many people are leaving religion in north america um in general i mean I, one of the things that we don't talk about is all of the question of denominations it matters um but what what will it look like in 10 15 years if the current sort of n n you know nothings religiously keep gaining um Anglicanism, if it wants to have a future, has to be a something. Um, and I think that we need to sort of think forcefully about that. Lutheranism is a something, right? You have to sit through six months of catechesis before you can even take a communion. So if you're going to be a Lutheran, you got to usually commit to a little bit more energy than just popping in for a weekend. Um, and, I, you know, we have a lot of students here, and I'm, I'm glad they come to the parish, but a lot of students, they come here, uh, they come to my parish, and then they may go over to the Catholic church and then I may I'll, maybe I'll visit um, the Orthodox church and they're doing it because of quote unquote tradition. A lot of them are evangelicals. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want, I would much rather us become more, I use the term confessional loosely here. I would rather us just, I, I mean, the, the Anglican term would be formulaic. Um, we have formulas. We should be formulaic. That doesn't sound, sexy to evangelicals because they don't want to be formulaic. The very reason they're becoming Anglican is because they're looking for mysticism and tradition. They're not looking for formulas. Um, well, we're a formulaic church. Um, and so I think that in as much as denominationalism is a thing among Anglicans, we should be a formulaic denomination because um, that's our only reason for existing um, really at this point. Uh, Can't and, they look at the Book of Common Prayer as, as a kind of formula well i mean i would imagine that there is it is part of the formulas uh there's, I, there's i mean i would imagine that is part of the appeal as far as a tradition goes even though i mean you guys use the 1662 is that we use the 1928 okay 28 um and i think that's a good that's a good point there i mean that my my struggle would be that so much of our our churchmanship is not set up even to be sort of appropriately formulaic in worship. I think of, for example, you have a lot of the urban churches, which are essentially these kind of like evangelical churches where what passes for a rector gets up and just does a lot of sort of extemporaneous talking, and then he'll mm. use a passage from the prayer book. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I mean, that that's a problem. Um, so I, I don't want to harp on the communion too much, but I think we have to take the church more seriously um and be less sync sync sort of syncretic um you know you have all these guys who are sort of say well i'm kind of eastern orthodox but i'm anglican it's bullshit you can't do that um so you you have to be something that's more expressive than even this faux term of anglicanism so i think the best way to describe that is protestant episcopal yeah we are protestant episcopalians um, and I know the language of the Episcopal Church is loaded for a bunch of people, but fundamentally, that's what we are. We are Protestant Episcopalians, and I think our churchmanship and even our understanding of membership should be hinged on that. So, hmm. well, 
that does remind me, I mean, Corey also said this, and I'll say this by way of closing, unless you guys want to say something else, but um, that people who come to the Lutheran churches sometimes associate that with ELCA, the Evangelical mm-hmm. Lutheran Church in America. So Lutherans are liberal or Anglicans, I mean, Episcopalians are liberal. And and we've we've also struggled with that. I think it's less common now, but I do remember someone telling me that we got to be careful about using the word Presbyterian because people associate yeah. that with the PCUSA, the mainline church, um, which is a way of saying that we're all sort of on the outside of the mainline uh, looking maybe not in, maybe away. Um, but I do, I do think overall we're, we are at a, at a, at a moment of some concern for me as, um, as a churchman, uh, and what is going to be the future of our various structures that we use for confessional Protestantism. I agree. So on that note, I will, um, I'll sign us off. We've been going a little bit more than an hour. And uh, thank you guys for being with us, for talking. Thanks to listeners for listening. And we hope to get back sooner uh, without as long a break next time. All right. Thanks, Daryl. See you, Daryl.